Vesmir Kai Hainif Il Mundo Tata Dima Potato Ngete Hair You're listening to The World at Your Fingertips Let's talk about sex, baby Let's talk about you and me Let's talk about all the good things and bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. In case you didn't get by the song, in case you couldn't hear our lyrics, this week we're talking about sex, baby. It's something that people get embarrassed about and we need to address the taboo of talking about sex. To be fair, at least my parents don't listen to the podcast, but yours do. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I, it's not just my parents, it's all sorts. So, <laughs> Your um, entire family, whereas mine apologies. are like, what is a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you suggested, like, I think we should do an episode about sex, I was like, oh God, okay. Oh, God. <laughs> and the thing is though, I'm doing it for the greater good of the podcast, and that's what's most important. And also because it does need to be addressed, and people do need to talk about it, so apologies, family, but I've got the best interests of, you know, the human race at heart. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a stage, like, after puberty, sex becomes just part of your life. Whether you're having sex or you're not having sex. Whether, if you go on your phone, you see a music video where people gyrating against each other. Like, mm. sex is in the world, whether you're having it or not. And it's better for people to be educated about it and feel comfortable, like, feel comfortable entering the world of sex as well as talking about it with other people because it just makes everything much more safe. But I think what's, like, good about this week is, you know, most of the stuff that we cover on this podcast might not necessarily impact many people. Uh, it might impact a certain group of people, but perhaps not not all the listeners. But this is this has got a much broader scope to impact most of our listeners, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think... Now that we're sort of asserting in the modern age that sexuality is a spectrum that includes so many different type of preferences, um, and that's beyond just heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, it includes pansexual, which is when you fall in love with the person despite their gender, um, or their gender is irrelevant to you feeling attracted to them. There's asexual, where you do not feel a sexual attraction towards anyone, um, which is more common than I think a lot of people think and people think of it as sort of a really big taboo but I think a lot of people part of their life you know people also become more sexually mature at different ages so yeah. just because you're not having sex at 16 when it's everyone's talking about it doesn't mean you're asexual doesn't mean you're not asexual I think there's just a lot of pressure of being like I'm this and I'm going to be this for the rest of my life rather than being like yeah. I've suddenly realised that, you know, I fall in love with the personality and that's okay, but you don't have to label yourself and preach about how you're pansexual. I think everything's just becoming much more accepted, but I also think it comes with a new sort of pressure of being like, but what are you then? There must be a name because there's so many names now. There must be a name for what you are, which comes with a whole different kind of pressure, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think there's like the ultimate pressure from the that big old, big old thing, which is the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> so the fact that that is such like, you know, obviously. I thought you were going to say orgasm as the big <laughs> thing. And I was like, yeah, orgasm. Um, yeah, take it that direction. Not not quite yet. But Sorry. like, the, <laughs> but the, um, the fact that I think there's like such a, like kind of going off the back of what you said about um, a pressure of having a label. I think what's good about the fact that there is a, 
a greater dialogue for understanding sexuality in whatever way that people experience that. Yeah, I guess it's the classic dewiring of the way we think about sex and the way we come to sex and the idea of something being normal, which really isn't really productive in any context because it just creates an othering for people not to talk about what they enjoy or what they don't Mm -hmm. enjoy and doesn't promote an open dialogue, which is really so important for a safe and comfortable sexual relationship, no matter what gender you are, what your preferences are. Um, being able to talk to your partner who you're with or the multiple partners that you're with to make sure that everyone feels comfortable is super important. I just want everyone to be safe. And I want young women especially, because that's the experience that I'm coming from, to feel open enough to say what you want and don't want and feel like you're empowered enough to take control of your own sex life, whether that be with someone else or by yourself and explore your body so you know what works for you. Because I think there comes so much confidence with understanding your own body that I think girls are coming to in their 20s rather than in their teens, which a lot of boys reach out and it can place them in situations in which they're not comfortable with, they don't have the vocabulary to get themselves out of it or feel able to define themselves within a certain circumstance, like in the bedroom or in a sexual situation in which they feel like, you know, objectified and they don't feel comfortable, but... I don't know. I just, I feel so, obviously I feel very passionate about this, but. <laughs> yeah, like... no, completely. And I, I I completely agree with you. And I think that there absolutely should be a place, a safe space for people to be able to explore these different sexual drives, perhaps, or these different feelings and different emotions and addressing them. And this should be a safe space where people can talk about it as well. And I don't think that there is an appropriate, well, I don't think there's necessarily an appropriate place at the moment for people to do that or perhaps a place where people feel that they can do that. I think definitely part of demystifying sex um, comes from the entertainment industry. Um, And we're not just talking about porn. I think literally sex sells whether you're in book publishing, music, radio, film, television. Sex sells because that's what people are like it's taboo and it's outrageous and it's scandalous and people like to consume it as um like visually and medially it's like a especially like hollywood has you believing that sex not only sells but it should be something that comes easy to anyone engaged in the conversation according to carla ivankovic phd ma uh, who wrote an article for psychology today called let's talk about the taboo of sex She says that sex has long been thought of as a topic cloaked in fantasy, privacy and kept between the sheets of consenting adults. That is, unless you look at any mainstream media. And I completely agree. I think that there's there is a call for a demystification, demystification, yeah, yeah, demystification of sex in modern fiction, modern day fiction and how these fantasies play out and what impact that can have on people. Definitely. I think also... The main way we do consume sex, (laughs) this sounds, yeah, the main way we do consume sort of sex is through mainstream media, but surely that is backwards in my mind. It should be, this is what I think about um, sort of parenting and that plays in, it's where we learn at an early age about not sex, but about what a loving, consenting relationship is. And I think that's just as important as learning about the mechanics of sex. I think seeing your parents say kiss and feel comfortable and be affectionate is something that should be normalised and not seen as something that should be kept private from the children because that is where you really learn what a comfortable relationship is and how two adults can communicate 
even if it's arguing, if it comes to a resolution and it comes to everyone feels safe enough to express their opinion, that is so important, I think, to raising children and teaching them not only what it is to be in a romantic relationship, but the things that feed into that, which is like, not just sex, it's it's com- being able to raise your voice and feel comfortable and, you know, reassuring each other. And this, I just think this, people think sex should be hidden away. And as a result, children don't see half of what an adult relationship is meant to be like healthily. And then we don't learn that as we grow up. Well, yeah, I mean, another thing that um, Carla Mankovic says, she, she says, we love to watch it, read it and participate in sex. But with all this interest and openness about it, why do we struggle to speak about it openly? And I agree, I think a, a, like a large part of that could come down to upbringing. Um, she puts part of it down to culture, family and religion. So in lots of spirit, religious and spiritual beliefs, there is this kind of strict rule of abstinence and purity it you know it it can well it can definitely play a predominant role in the failure of addressing sex and sexuality at the appropriate stages in life and therefore have a greater consequence um so given that education remains an ongoing process through the development of human life the sooner the dialogue begins the less likely someone will be to suppress the natural desire to understand this topic or worse yet seek understanding in places where the information provided is woefully inaccurate. So that last quote there was by Ivankovic in this article. I definitely think it's something that maybe is becoming more liberal to talk about now, uh, where I feel like perhaps in our parents' generations, it wasn't so much. Uh, that's just, I think, from the from what's going on in, in dialogue of sex at the moment. I don't know what you think about that, Kate. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, that's not me calling out <laughs> my parents for not... Um discussing it with me but that's just something I I already know and am very aware from my own experience that I want to bring to any children that I might have um yeah. and make sure that they can that I think a lot of people forget that it's absolutely natural like it's how the majority of people who are born in the world were conceived and I yeah. think that there is no advantage to in the 21st century when there's this much content on the internet and people are going to learn about it indefinitely there's no advantage to trying to keep a sort of mystification about it yeah and I think a major thing of that a major part of that is sex education in schools I don't know about you but I think I had about an hour's worth of sex education in my entire schooling that's from like the age of four to 18 and yeah, I'm completely the same. I think one thing I learned from that was you don't use a crisp packet as a condom. That was like one thing I'll never forget that my teacher said. And that was in Yale, like about, like, I think we had like one lesson per term for like my first three years of high school, which is just mm. not sufficient. I think I had one lesson in year 11 and that's it. That's mad. That year wasn't, 11, that's late as well. I know. And I can remember thinking like, what, like, not gonna lie. Everyone always knows the stuff, already knows the stuff. You should have told us that when we were a lot younger. And But what gets me is that actually I just did some research and they've actually, from September 2020, I don't know how this has changed because of the coronavirus, but the Department of Education have published new guidance um, on what should be included in sex education. And it is way more um, LGBTQI plus... Um, friendly and it's talking about safe homosexual sex as well as safe uh, heterosexual sex and stuff and there is improvement obviously it's not always clear how much that would be applied in specific schools but it is nice to see that there is information in 2020 that is being added 
and refreshed to be more inclusive, but also to be more educational. Because even if you're a heterosexual woman, I think you should know about like safe homosexual sex, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Because you don't know what people you might meet, what people who might not have had the opportunity, you have to be educated and that might need your help or it comes up in conversation. Yeah. And I think it's the same with educating people on different cultures. Like if you're not educated on how... Um, say the Sikh religion works, then how can you have an open and honest conversation with someone of that religion? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. There was one more thing that I read, I think it was on social media, how um, predators use the fact that children don't know the anatomical names for their parts in order to get away with sexually assaulting people. Oh my God. Have you read that? That is awful. No, I haven't. Well, basically it's because... Because when, you know, a lot of children have, like, pet names for their private parts, even, like, Willy, and people call it Cookie for vagina. And because, like, even though vagina is not a dirty word, a lot of people avoid it because they find it uncomfortable to bring up. It's a taboo. Yeah, it's a taboo word. But, um, yeah, so I read on social media this sort of article about how um, sexual predators for children have been using that to their advantage so they've sort of been calling it like a cookie. And so if someone, if a young girl talks up about it, it's like, he touched my cookie. And the teacher's kind of like, well, fine, um, wash your hands. Don't eat it because it's been touched, you know. But actually they're talking about vagina, but because they don't know the right vocabulary, they can't bring it to an adult's attention that something's inappropriate is going on. And that sort of creates a cloak of mystery that allows predators to operate within because there isn't an honest dialogue happening with children and what's wrong and what's right and what are the right names. So even if they do speak up about it, other adults don't understand and it can go on for longer. To not educate young people on it is a big problem and that's why it needs to be talked about and it needs to stop being like stigmatised and stop being called like a taboo because it's you know it's not something that's a secret but people act as if it is and and as if it's some sort of like secret group that you can't be a part of if you don't know anything about it or if you do then it's like speculated over especially when you're younger people talking about different things that they've heard and all this and that like why not just make it just avoid all of that and just teach people about it teach yeah, younger people about it yeah like it's definitely important to to understand how sex education and the media sets us up our own understanding of sex but I think something that's still really unexplored is the pleasure side of sex and the idea that you've got to find that for yourself and it's not something that could be um, taught to you or isn't even alluded to I think is another whole problem so Annabelle's going to give us some information about you know the forgotten orgasm and how that that's not seen as a priority when really it's a major part of of a, a woman's sexual experience and a man's sexual experience is really important, but it's just not spoken about. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's bring on Annabelle and see what she got to tell us. So hello, Annabelle. Hello. How are you? Hi. <laughs> I'm not so bad. I'm all the better for speaking to you. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I know. Gosh. Charmer. I can tell you're a TV personality. It's coming out. I know. You're just be, be charming nice us. To everyone is my motto, TV or not, just because, you know, it's, it's, I hate the saying it's nice to be nice, but it really is. It makes you feel so much better when you're, when you're sweet and nice and kind. Thank you yeah. for coming on, Annabelle, and giving us your time. 
No, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I love talking about sex and love and relationships. So any excuse. So before oh, we get maybe. started, what are you drinking? I have got a cup of tea that can only be described as the shade He-Man, kind of a He-Man deep mahogany. He-Man? I like it very strong. Yeah, I think He-Man might be before your time. He was a cartoon character. Google him. He has a very, very tough... Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a... Well, Google him. He-Man. That's how I like the shades of my tea to be. I've got him. I love how he goes through, I'm guessing through the years, various shades of fake tan is what he goes through. I think it depended on what colour kind of felt tips they had in the office at the time. Yeah. Okay, what are you drinking? Also a cup of tea. And mine is um, He-Man just before he goes on holiday. So a bit paler. <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of before pathos I'm yeah. post pathos <laughs> yeah exactly like that what about you Molly? I'm also drinking a of tea and I would say mine is about the same as yours Kate yeah yeah. Uh, so Annabelle do you want to give us just a bit of a rundown on who you are and all of the many many things that you do then what I do oh, okay so my name is Annabelle Knight I am a sex and relationships expert. I have qualifications in couples counselling and psychosexual therapy and life coaching. Um, I work in TV sometimes, radio sometimes, magazines sometimes, and I also write uh, romance novels on the side. Woo! Which is The Endless Autumn, isn't it? Yes, my debut, The Endless Autumn, is out. My second book is coming out. Well, it was supposed to be coming out in October, but coronavirus put paid to that. So the new launch date is the 8th of February. And then my third one should be out uh, the following year. Oh, oh my gosh. That's I'm so amazing. excited. To be fair, I, I read, I've read Endless Autumn. It was an awkward exchange when my mum was like, you've got to read Annabelle's new book. And I was like... Oh, your mum. Yeah. She's literally your biggest fan. And I was like, mum, do you know what it's about? <laughs> she texted me when she was uh, in the hospital with a woman who was having a baby um and said oh i've told her to read it i was like maybe help her have a baby i don't know <laughs> one of my friends was like i was starting to get turned on and all i could do was see your face and I was just like, oh god no it killed it like, oh. <laughs> oh that is yeah i can't even imagine the conversations i just love how like confident you are i'm wondering like how did you first start on the career path of becoming like a sex expert do you know what? It's a really, really clear moment in my mind when I thought that's what I want to do. I was about 11 years old and I was at my granddad's house and he used to read The Sun. And I was flicking through it and I always used to flick to the back where Dear Deirdre was. And I remember reading a problem and I can't remember what the problem was, but I remember really clearly reading the answer and going, that's not what I'd do. And I was like, <laughs> right, that's what I need to do. I need to help people with their love lives. Um, So that's been kind of the the goal for many, many moons. Um, and I'm very, very lucky that I get to say that I uh, genuinely love what I do um, and get to do what I love. So I do feel very, very um, lucky in that respect. That's yeah. like, like so interesting. I'm really intrigued. What was your path there? Like, what did you do at like school, university? Like, how, how, how did you get there? Well, I did um, psychology, GCC and A-level. Um, and then I knew I wanted to kind of work in the media. So I did a media production uh, degree at De Montfort University, which was the most fabulous experience. Um, and then I was trying to kind of marry the two. So I did student radio and my show was kind of 
not so much sex and relationships, but a bit agony and because it was very chatty, quite like magazine-y. Um, and I thought that this is kind of the area I want to be in. And I was like, you know, 20, 21. So I wasn't 100% sure I knew kind of the area I wanted to go in, but I didn't really know how to get there or, or, how to, how, or what to do. So I left university and um, got a normal job because I was trying to kind of, my dream was to go on this morning and be the agony on, on this morning. Uh, but that was already taken. So I was like, right, I can't just kind of wait around waiting for ITV to call me, which is what <laughs> I thought uh, the deal would be back then. So I got a normal job um, and it was fine, but it wasn't for me. I, I didn't enjoy kind of the monotony and the structure of a nine to five. I like um, I like kind of the feast and famine of self-employed work. Um, so I put myself on a presenter's course um, with the TV Training Academy, which is still going, and they're so lovely. They have me back every now and then to go and speak to the students about um, my career path and my journey. So I did a TV presenting course, um, learned a lot of things, and then kind of went off as a jobbing presenter. Um, and I was trying to write for magazines, and I was writing things down and sending things off, and you, it's just a lot of rejection, and, and not even rejection, kind of unanswered, in limbo all the time, like you don't hear back from people, and it's um it's really hard to know what you should be doing and, and when you should be doing it so I kept writing things um I got a website going and started kind of like a little blog and I would ask people for their relationship questions and then when I didn't get any and I would just make them up and it would just be a creative kind of output for me um and then I ended up working with a company called Love Honey who are the biggest uh, online retailer of sex toys books, lingerie, uh, anything to make your bedroom antics more fun. Um, and I started working with them, presenting their kind of informative videos and, and our relationship grew and I started to get, because they had a PR and marketing team, so I started to get magazine work kind of as Love Honey's residence expert, um, which was really good because it made me realise that that is 100% what I want to do. Uh, there's no, no nothing else for me. So I was like, right, I need to get qualified. Um, and be authoritative and relevant at the same time. So I did a couples counselling course. Um, I then did body language course. I then did um, psychosexual therapy, a diploma in that, and a life coaching course as well. Like anything I could, uh, anything that I saw that I thought, you know what, that's really going to help my skill set and help me help other people. So yeah, then and then I had a really kind of low month in terms of work I wasn't doing much and I was watching a lot of friends and not getting out of my pajamas and I thought I needed I need something else creative to like put my energies into so I decided to write a book a friend of mine uh, had chosen a life path that was a little bit uh, a little bit autumn let's say <laughs> so she was my the kind of building blocks for the story so I just started writing and then I've just been freelance ever since doing tv radio and whatever I got an agent which helped and that's that's been me for the last 10 years amazing I'm kind of wondering because obviously love honey is a massive massive company and I'm wondering how sort of the sex um is it right to say the sex industry or is that porn yeah, yeah sex industry yeah, I think we're, we're all part and parcel of the same um with the same goal like people's pleasure is our primary focus yeah. So how did that sort of change post Fifty Shades of Grey being released, do you think? Oh, my God, so much. Um, the kind of light bondage and BDSM categories just exploded. Um, Love Honey actually produced alongside Erica, who wrote Fifty Shades, um, the Fifty Shades of Grey sex toy collection. 
So, and that is like a multi-million pound range of sex toys. It, it, people absolutely love them um, because it's, you know, you, you develop fantasies through reading the novels, um, whether it's exactly what you've read or whether your mind takes you on a slightly different journey and you get to act out those fantasies and kind of dip your toe in that fantasy becoming reality with the sex toys, especially breaking down the, the barriers because BDSM sounds scary to people that don't really know what it is or what it's about. Um, so getting people just to try something new, it, it, I, I mean, it's been a, an amazing uh, thing to see in terms of sex toy sales and the um, sex trends within not just the UK, but the world. Have you think people have become more open about talking about sex since then as well? I think they are, but on an arm's distance, like arm's length. So um, I've certainly found that people are able to kind of use the terminology a bit more freely um, without blushing but if you want if you want people to talk about their own personal experiences with it then they become guarded again because we still have this sex is a very private thing it's behind closed doors it's you know, between two loving partners and that's the kind of message we're uh, given even now it, um, sex is you know there's a point to sex it's kind of procreation when really the point to sex is pleasure because for the most part when you have sex it's not to make a baby it's not to like carry on your lineage it's to come it's to have fun with your, a partner your partner several partners or, or yourself so talking about like pleasure and sex i'm just looking at some stats here from this article i mentioned earlier from psychology today by carla ivankovic who's a phd in i think in sex and relationships as well so she uh, says that in 2017, the global markets for the adult toy industry reported a net worth of close to $24 billion. Additionally, these figures were projected to increase by about 40% by 2020, which is unreal. Like, it's, like, it's it's such, and also, I've also read elsewhere that it's like, grown even more in lockdown. There's been like a a spike in sex toys. Yeah, well, I've seen that personally because I have a range of sex toys out called the Annabelle Knight Collection and they have, um, I've sold probably 25% more than, um, you know, previous months. Love Honey in 15 years have increased trade by sevenfold. So they've gone, are they now like turnover like 100 million? Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. I've been with them for 10 years and the company has, it just grows exponentially every year and it's bigger and better and bolder which is something I really like as well I think also like Love Honey as a company I don't know about you but I always I can remember like walking down the high street uh as like a young girl and seeing Ann Summers and stuff and being like oh my god I can't even look in that direction as people will think I'm obsessed with sex or something which is like so ridiculous yeah. I was in the same boat. I went in and bought, I can't remember what I bought, but it was something novelty and I had an Anselmer's bag and I was only like 17, maybe 18. And I remember walking through Nottingham City Centre with this bag like under my jacket because I didn't want people to think, I was like, oh, someone's going to call me a whore or a slut. I'll get called something really bad because I've got an Anselmer's bag. Which is just <laughs> crazy. It is so strange that that's that stigma around mm. like Ann Summers as a shop as well as like, this is why I think... Uh, so Love Honey sends all of its toys in like no um, no branded packaging, yeah, right? Yeah, discreet so it's packaging, not up plain on. brown. It, it doesn't even say Love Honey on the on the like returns address label. It just says LH Trading, which I think is like a major part of beginning 
the conversation because it mm. gets rid of that initial embarrassment of the high stream being online is such like a helpful part for that but this is like i'm um, just a personal question i'm intrigued like what goes into so you have your own line of sex toys but like what goes into sort of designing a sex toy because i know nothing about that um, I, I mean, it's a very similar process to designing any product that mm. is uh, for public consumption. There's market research, there's development, there's um, a lot of a lot of sitting around tables and, and choosing different materials. And there's um, the sample stage. So you'll go to different suppliers and with your design ideas and the functionality you'd like it to have and any features or a shape or whatever. And then they will um, make mould, make the toy, send you a version of it at first that doesn't work. So it's just like it's like a dummy. So you can sign off on the colourways, the shape, the material, the feel, the size. And then once you've done that, they'll then do the innards and then send that to you. So you can make sure like it's quiet enough, uh, the batteries fit. Uh, if it's rechargeable, there's no issues with that. You know, the patterns work, the functionality is exactly as you want it. Uh, and then once that, I mean, and this takes months, like 10 months to a year to, to get this this process all done, because it's not just, you know, my sex toys that are being developed. It's lots of other sex toys that are being developed at the same time. So it's a, a bit of a waiting game sometimes. But it is really fulfilling when, you know, everything's signed off and you get the, you know, the first proper toy in the first proper packaging with the first proper leaflet and you open it up and have a play with it. And you're like, this is great. People are going to love this. Yeah, that's so exciting. Like, that's so cool that you have like a line of products to your name. So that was just a fangirl movement. The, the first time. So one of the, I was really gutted. This, this product didn't do very well in the, and it got discontinued. But it was a little vibrator and a pair of really gorgeous black lace knickers. And mm. the vibrator, the knickers had a little pocket in that you could put the vibrator in or you could just use it on its own. It was a tiny bullet one. And I remember holding these pants and they had a label with my name on, like as like a design, like any brand of clothing you buy. And I remember I was being filmed for a documentary at the time. And I was holding these pants and crying because I was so happy. <laughs> and when I... When I got myself together, I was like, please don't put that on the telly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My tears away with black lace. So when we first approached you with a topic, Annabelle, you s named it forgetting the orgasm. So what forgetting was sort the of... orgasm, yeah. Yeah, what was your thinking behind that title? Well, it, um, it kind of losing the stigma behind um, sex without climax is a, something that really I'm really passionate about because it takes away the idea that sex is for fun and it gives it kind of a mission and if you don't complete that mission then you failed in some way um, and that is for both partners um, or like whatever's between your legs however you identify and whoever you go to bed with most people during a sexual experience have climax as their you know end goal and what that does for a lot of people is take away, take them away from the here and now and, and the pleasure they're feeling in the moment because they're concentrating on, I've got to come, I've got to climax, I've got to orgasm. The person I'm with will think they're rubbish at sex if I don't. It won't be worth my time if I don't. And there's all these um, mental conversations that you have with yourself, whether you acknowledge that or not. Um, and it can really spoil a sexual experience and, and kind of taint how you feel about sex. Um, a lot of uh, women especially or people with the clitoris I should say will uh, subconsciously avoid sex sometimes because they fear being unable to orgasm 
So with that in mind, I have kind of put together a, a kind of a list of things that should be your focus rather than orgasm. And they are desire, pleasure, erotica and satisfaction. And if you tick off those four, you've had a really good sexual experience. But it's really difficult to push that message when the orgasm is pushed like from far more corners than just mine with far, like far more strength. So I'm kind of like shouting in the wind a lot here. Yeah, now you sort yeah. of said that, that makes so much sense. Like, yeah, completely. Like, oh, actually, there's an article from uh, a website called Her Campus, and it's titled mm. "Sex: uh, Five Sex Taboos You Should Be Over By Now," and it's by Gina Escandon, and she lists number four as not having an orgasm, and says that uh, sex researchers have pretty much figured out that having an orgasm from penetrative sex alone is slim. So let's bring this topic out of the shadows. Yeah, so she's like, like 80% of people that own a vagina don't climax through penetrative sex. And that's why sex toys, in my opinion, are kind of, they should be part and parcel of a happy and healthy sex life. Um, they're not for everyone, and that's fine. There's still a lot of stigma and taboo with using sex toys. People can think that it will send the wrong message to their partner or that uh, if they use that, if they need, in inverted commas, lubricant, or if they need a vibrator, then they're broken in some way and they're not performing as they should. Um, because, you know, you watch porn for five minutes and there's a screaming orgasm and a soaking, soaking wet vagina in like 30 seconds. It's like, it doesn't work <laughs> like that in real life. Porn is entertainment. It's not fact. So don't don't get like pin your hopes on porn teaching you how to have good sex. Yeah, that's like a really good point as well, saying it's entertainment, because I think that's something that like no one really understands is that it is like an entertainment industry. They're adult film stars and actors and actresses. You know, they're while they will obviously enjoy sex and enjoy having sex, it, it is a job to them. And they are putting on a show for the camera so that the person watching at home enjoys themselves. It's not they're not designed to be an educational tool. They're designed to be entertainment. We've got statistics that say that a lot of women fake orgasms. I, I think it's fair to say a lot of people have done it. But that doesn't mean that they had bad sex when they faked that orgasm. That means that they felt the pressure that society puts on us to to climax and they responded to that pressure rather than responding to the, um, the sexual stimuli that was happening in the moment. So instead of letting their body respond, they, they let their mind respond. That is such a preach moment. Yeah. <laughs> You're literally like yeah. the guru that everyone needs in their lives, <laughs> Annabelle. You absolutely are. It's really difficult to practice kind of mindfulness during sex because you're kind of people do let their minds wander and you can get bogged down in your own preconceptions and misconceptions about what sex should be, which spoils the experience for you. So it's really good to try and be mindful during the moment and, um, and kind of like be kind to yourself during it. It's just, if something's not working for you, switch it up, change positions. Like it's so easy to communicate positive sexual body language with someone. You don't have to say, Oh my God, I'd do it this way or, or do it that way. Or I love that or I hate that. If you're a bit shy or nervous about confronting your partner with a change of kind of sexual scenario, you you don't have to physically say it. The words don't have to come out of your mouth. You've got, you know, your body is a great teller, a great communicator. 50% of our communication comes from our body language. So to utilise that tool. Yeah, absolutely. I th well, I think maybe a problem is, is like the fact that perhaps negative body language can be, um, can kind of emerge from these common misunderstandings and misconceptions that come from 
you know, from like young people not being educated properly about sex and perhaps learning about it for the first time through things like porn and stuff. It's a big problem. And I think that perhaps that's kind of, again, building towards this expectation that people have as they go into like their early sexual experiences or yeah especially with like a partner there's research that shows that um you know the average pornographic not saying like explicit porn but the average erotic image uh the consumer is like 13 to 14 year old males so if their first experience of sex is something that's not real that your mind at that age your brain at that age isn't very good at discerning between you know fact and fiction when it's something you don't know about you can't you don't have the life experience or skills to say well I'm not familiar with that but it's probably this based on my experience of x y and z so they will take this imagery and take it as fact so that's why sex education is it's vital that we teach young people about healthy relationships about consent about sexual pleasure and gratification and lots of other different things but it's vital that we get there before they are going to have those early experiences on their own because you can't ask people to make an informed decision on something like sex if they are not informed about sex yeah definitely that statistic is insane it's horrifying that is yeah but also i think in terms of sex education, I think it's interesting that, like, I do think girls come to sex a lot later than boys, and I'm not sure what really that is. I don't know if you know more about it, Annabelle, whether it's, like, the social pressure to remain pure or something, but do you think that's oh, changing? This is, this is madness because, yeah, you're right. If, you know, if you've got a penis, it's um, the the larger message, world message is, you know, it's all right to have sex with as many people as you want because that proves you're a young stud you're virile your you know set your sexual prowess is off the charts yet if you have a clitoris between your legs that must that is golden that should remain secret that is not for anyone else other than the person you marry so the messages are really mixed um when it comes to like the kind of gender divide between sex education and sexual messages um and i think there is a lot of pressure for for young women to remain pure to save themselves there's this idea of like giving yourself away and you can't ever get that back so you've got to make sure you give yourself to someone really special yeah that's that's complete bollocks i've (laughs) never heard so much utter horseshit in my whole life it's a line used to a inspire confidence in that person because you're paying them a compliment to start with so you get a little spike of dopamine when someone gives you a compliment and that makes you bond with that person and if you bond with that person you trust that person so if someone is telling you you are so special there's your compliment your your body is beautiful and wonderful and it's yours there's your other compliment you've had a couple of little spikes of dopamine you trust that person you like that person because they're nice to you and then they tell you but you've got to save yourself that message will be more heavily cemented in that person's psyche because of the way it's been delivered. Whereas young men don't have that message at all. In fact, I've got lots of friends with kids of all different ages, and there's a very stark difference between um, my friends that have boys. Like they're saying boys will be boys. Oh, they're fine. Also, what if he lifted her skirt off his skirt up? And she'll oh. have a little chuckle at that because boys will be boys. But the that the message that is enforced there is actually she's your property you you can do anything you like to that little girl um and then usually the little girl is told oh don't worry about it he's only a little boy don't worry 
and little boys grow up to be big men. So we have to be very careful about the types of messages we're reinforcing when they're young. Definitely. The whole term boys will be boys just beefs me so much. Like, yeah, you, but also, you know, I have four brothers, Annabelle, and that I think they were raised like very well in terms of what what's right and what's wrong. But even the difference into which I was reaching the age of like 14, 15, 16, the different ways in which I was treated um, as like a young girl than say Sam was when he was at the same age as a young boy was so different. And like so everything cool. was like, you have to be on the lookout. It's dangerous. It's danger. And sex became associated with danger rather than enjoyment and trust and happiness. It was yeah. sex equals yeah. a dangerous activity and you want to stay away from it. And like, even just boys are dangerous, which I think is such a negative thing. And like a anxiety inducing thing when a young girl's going to parties and stuff and interacting with young men in different ways to say that they're like a straight away associated with danger rather than a consenting and you know equal relationship yeah Yeah. yeah. but people and parents especially they do that with because that it's just a learned behavior they they are passing on what happened to them and what happened to their parents and and that will carry on down the chain it's only when we start having these types of conversations and discussing it that you realise that perhaps it's not the best way to go about things and perhaps there are other ways in which you could go about things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We, we like, spoke in the intro about... Well, it was mainly me. I kind of went off on one. I don't know where that came out, but I just got very passionate about having not only open relationships about sex, but about what mature relationships should be in front of your children. So showing affection, Mm. showing arguments, but also their resolutions um, in terms of what a relationship is, not just what it is sexually, but uh, like a consenting, equal-footed relationship, I think is so important to show your children. Absolutely. Every facet of a relationship um, should be available for young people to, to see and to learn from. Um, And I always say to any couples that I um, help in therapy sessions, your relationship will be the template for your children's relationships. They will view your relationship as the bar to either aim for or to either avoid. And if it is avoidance, you need to look at yourselves and say, what are we doing that's wrong? Um, A lot of a lot of couples stay together when they really shouldn't or, or, or even when they don't want to. And I hear it all the time for the children the children will be better off if you separate and show them what a healthy separation looks like because relationships aren't just two people sticking together. They can be two people separating and then they can be two people finding other partners. And if you stay together and it causes disharmony and disruption and there's a negative emotional space for your children to grow up in, that will taint the way they view relationships and it will also taint the way they view themselves so that their relationships moving further down the line are less likely to be happy and harmonious and are more likely to be disruptive and dysfunctional. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, since there's such a, like as we were saying earlier, there's like a very minimal education on sex at school. I do feel sorry for teachers, though, because when we're talking about sex and relationship education, because, you know, if you're a teacher and you're suddenly, someone suddenly says to you, your school says to you, you're going to teach this group of kind of hormonal prepubescent or postpubescent children um, about sex and relationships and these are kids that you see every day that can tease you that can you know make it make things a little more difficult for you on a subject that you're probably not that comfortable talking about yourself th- this is where we fall down sex and relationship education should be taught by sex 
educators, not by teachers that have just been handed a curriculum, because it, it is an awkward topic. Like we said, when we refer, how many times do I talk to people in my professional career and they blush or they um, try and make a joke out of it because it, they feel awkward and humour diffuses that awkwardness. But if we have sex educators going into our schools who, who are no nonsense and are very factual, suddenly sex becomes something interesting to learn about rather than something to like snigger behind your hands next to your best friend because it's awkward and you, you know we don't we don't like awkwardness yeah definitely what was the the fact you said earlier about the percentage of kids that don't learn about anything that's not piv so what what we tend to the stats we tend to go by is about three quarters of pupils aren't taught about consent and 95 percent are not taught about any other type of sex other than penis in vagina sex which is the piv sex we were talking about earlier so lesbian gay bisexual transgender relationships all of like a, a massive percentage of the population and of students as well what we've got to remember is if you're not teaching students about all these types of relationships if you are a student that goes, that you know, say you're sat there and you're a 15-year-old girl and you're like, oh, I'm gay as fuck. Why is gay sex not being taught here? Why am I missed out? You're, you're avoiding the conversation about different types of sex with the very people that are going to go on to have those different types of sex. So it's really damaging because it makes people feel lesser. Yeah. Do you think it also affects like how other people view different types of sex and adds to sort of the the lack of conversation about yeah, it? Yeah, of course. Like if you you know the only way you normalise anything is through experience, and if you're not going to directly experience gay sex or lesbian sex or you're not trans yourself, the only way you you take away the stigma and you become more comfortable with the, those aspects of sexuality is by talking about it because that's the, you familiarise yourself with it. So if you're not being taught about gay sex or uh, like anything to do with non-straight cisgendered people, it almost makes that those elements lesser and, and less important. And if it's less important in the classroom, they take that, that message out of the classroom as well. I think it's so confusing with sort of the term sex education as well, because it's not just important to educate about the act of sex or whatever kind of sex you have, but mm. everything that plays into that sort of like hygiene, looking after yourself, like noticing signs of like um, infection or diseases. And I think a lot of yeah. the time that you can lead to so much more harm and more risk by not teaching about proper hygiene and stuff. Yeah, I mean, hygiene's important. Uh, the areas surrounding um, consent are, is important. Once you kind of remove yourself from the idea that sex is for pleasure, um, which is what the schools tend to do, it makes it an easier topic to teach because it becomes very sterile and very black and white it, it's not sterile and it's not black and white sex is messy and sometimes it's disgusting and sometimes it's gross and young people need to you know <laughs> you need to be aware of all the elements that can happen so that it's normal so that if it does happen to you it's not the most scarring and traumatic experience ever yeah definitely yeah absolutely I feel like anything like that that you hear about you never hear about that on any kind of educational level in terms of like institution uh, institutional education you always hear like it'll be stories through friends or perhaps articles you read online it's never it's almost as if you have to then like seek out that education as opposed to actually being provided with it and young people do seek it out they you know if they're not get, gonna have answers to their questions at school which is a safe and uh, controlled environment you you're better off teaching these things in school because it's safeguarding the young people if they're yeah. then left you know i'm going home i've got a million and one questions none of which were answered at all they were just skirted around 
I'm going to go on the internet and the answer, like the amount of misinformation that's on the internet as well is staggering. So, you know, yeah. it's much better to have it, have sex yeah, education definitely. taught at a younger age, age appropriate sex education that is fully comprehensive is what our nation is crying out for. Adults try so hard to protect children from things that they don't need protecting from. And all it does is once you've created that taboo around it, it makes it more mysterious and it makes it more appealing. So if you take away the stigma, you take you know, the, the way to, um, you know, let kids make an educated decision is to educate them. If you start your period and you haven't had any sex education, that is a travesty to me. Mm. And, and think about the variety of ages in which, you know, periods start any kind of age from 12 onwards. So we re- things are happening to young women that don't understand because we haven't taught them about it. I remember one of my friends starting her periods and I was lucky enough to have parents that were a little bit more kind of forthcoming with information. So I kind of had an idea that, that was going to happen to me at some, time, at some point. But she was crying in the toilets because she thought she was dying. And that must have been so traumatic. Yeah, definitely. And I think... Not only that, but nowadays, like stuff like the range of period products that are actually available. And so you're not forced to use something that you're not comfortable with or makes you feel like dirty or makes you feel not comfortable because clearly that's not the right product for you. But I think straight away people are like, oh, we use these. We use pads because that's what young people use when they first get the period. And it's like, well, if this makes me feel uncomfortable and I don't feel like I'm comfortable in school wearing this there's no other option given it's usually like but this is what everyone does and it's like no it isn't there's lots of different things everything should be more personalized I think to the person and that goes same with like grooming because I can remember like first beginning to shave and having no guidance and you know, taking a razor down there is a very dangerous activity when you oh, don't know what's going life on. Into your hands, don't you? It's so much more than just sex for me. It's about, like I said, hygiene, but also just having options and knowing you have options in, like, not only sex. And options that you feel very confident with. Like, I always think with the kind of feminine grooming side, who is that for? There's two ways of looking at it. One is, oh, it makes me feel sexy. But who gave us that message that? shaving off our natural hair is preferable and, and who's who are we trying to like appeal to with that with that look I mean don't get me wrong I shave uh, wax you know absolutely everything but there's always some part of me that's just like this is the patriarchy I am their puppet I'm <laughs> doing what I'm supposed to do I think it's really important that it's promoted in a way of you know your own self satisfaction I guess and that can cover so many different parts of what we're talking about today because I think well in this particular context like I think if you want to do it because it makes you feel better and it makes you feel happier within yourself then then you can groom yourself or you can you know buy a sex toy you can do what absolutely you want to do because it's like it's all about your own self like happiness and satisfaction I know, and when it, life it, it, is too short not to absolutely feel happy in your own skin and not to feel sexually satisfied it's like you know good sex and happy in your own skin what more could you ask for definitely right yeah. this is the time to plug your socials annabelle knight as a pos- sex positive oh. influencer okay so i am on twitter and instagram i am miss bell knight on twitter and annabelle knight on instagram um i have a website annabellenight.com um, where it's a bit of a hub, tells people what I'm up to. Um, 
if you want work stuff, Twitter's the place to be. My Instagram is largely food, French bulldogs and fitness because it is my personal account, but I do post work stuff on there as well. So thank you so much again, Annabelle. That was a really like, interesting and informative episode, definitely for us too, but I hope for all of our listeners as well. So thank you everyone who's listening and we'll see you next week.